Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Are you okay? You sound a little dour. Oh, I didn't mean to. And I'm Ben. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good today, yeah. Thank you for listening to us. Yes, thank you. I'm doing good, I cleaned the house. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) What are we watching today? Let's just dive right into it. Sure. So today's episode is kind of like the direct sequel, part two, to our episode on Monster from the Ocean Floor, which was episode 170B. Yeah. Um, Because today we are watching The Beast with a Million Eyes from 1955, which is also a Roger Corman picture. They say... Santa sees you when you're sleeping. I feel like this beast probably does too. Totally possible. Totally possible. (laughs) So if you want to learn more about Roger Corman and how he got his start from being an engineer who was super bored with engineering to a filmmaker who thought movie sets could be run with more efficiency, uh, check out episode 170B on his uh, first film as a producer, Monster from the Ocean Floor. As we mentioned in that episode, Monster from the Ocean Floor was proportionately highly successful, um, making $185,000 on its $15,000 budget. Corman made $60,000 selling the distribution rights to the film to Lippert Pictures. And with this money, this 60000 he was then able to finance his next movie, a car-racing crime drama called The Fast and the Furious. Which I, I do eventually want to do, like, a double feature of this Fast and the Furious and the, like, Vin Diesel Fast and the Furious. Yeah, um, it would be wild because not only are the two films very different from one another, but neither of them are anything like what the Fast and Furious franchise has, like, become. I would love to know what Roger Corman thinks of what the franchise has become. For sure, because, like, now it's just, like, plain clothes superhero movies, basically. I think he'd be into it. With cars. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, because he's into, like, making money. (laughs) (laughs) So, to distribute the Fast and the Furious, Corman made a deal with advertiser James Nicholson and lawyer Samuel Arkoff, who had recently formed the American Releasing Corporation. Uh, Nicholson was a lifelong fan of science fiction and fantasy, and friends with professional sci-fi fan Forrest Ackerman, best known for his Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Nicholson started working as an usher at a movie theater at age 16. By 17, he was a projectionist, and by 19, he owned the theater. Oh, whoa. (laughs) That's that's quite the rise. (laughs) Yes. By 28, he owned four theaters in Los Angeles and was constantly developing new ways of attracting customers uh, to his theaters. This led to Real Art Pictures hiring Nicholson to devise advertising campaigns for their reissues of Universal's pre-1946 back catalog. Sure, that makes sense. This would occasionally involve 
you know, retitling some of these old movies for something that, like, oh, we think this title will play better now and stuff like that. One of Real Art's re-releases was a Western, which Nicholson had retitled to a name that turned out to be similar to the name of a screenplay that writer Alex Gordon was working on. So Gordon sued Real Art, and he hired entertainment lawyer Samuel Arkoff to represent him. Over the course of the case, Arkoff and Nicholson became friends. And after the case was resolved, the two of them continued to... Hang out? Yeah, have a friendship. Arkoff had put some money into Gordon's friend Ed Wood's movie, Bride of the Monster. Mm-hmm. And the end result of that was that Arkoff kind of walked away with most of the profits of that movie, um, simply due to the way that Wood had found the funds to make it. For more on Ed Wood, listeners can go find our episode on Bride of the Monster, episode 175. So, with these profits, this enabled Arkoff and Nicholson to team up and form American Releasing Corporation so that they could begin distributing their own movies. The Fast and the Furious was the very first ARC release, following a deal that Corman made with Arkoff and Nicholson, which was that ARC would reimburse Corman the 60k cost of The Fast and the Furious and then distribute the movie so that Corman could immediately use that advance to move into making his next picture, rather than having to wait to see if Fast and the Furious was profitable before starting production on the next movie. ARC and Corman signed a three-picture deal under this arrangement, of which the Fast and the Furious would be the first of the three films. So the Fast and the Furious ended up making... $250,000 for ARC, uh, even though as the B picture, um, playing second fiddle to A's from the major studios, uh, it would, it made less than it could have, um, because bottom features were rented at flat rates rather than percentages. So if you're an A picture, if you're gone with the wind, uh, (laughs) Gone with the Wind, followed by Fast and the Furious. That's right. Um, You know, movie theaters rent your picture to show it in their theater. And what they pay you is a percentage of the tickets, right? So you buy your, you know, now $12 ticket, and a certain percentage of that is going back to David O. Selznick for making Gone with the Wind, and that's your box office. But B pictures, it's a flat rate. That's right. So a B picture, it doesn't matter um, how many people go to see it. What matters is how many theaters rented it, which is related to how many people are going to see it because theaters will rent a movie if it's showing to be successful and people are going to see it, right? Um, and you rent, you know, by the week as well. So the longer your th- movie stays in theaters, the reason why. B-movies are at a flat rate rather than a percentage is because the audience for B-movies is very, very small. So if you were doing it on a percentage, it's possible that you'd never make your money back. Yeah. Um, But theaters needed B-movies to take that slot in the program. They couldn't just not take them. So the deal was you'd get this flat rate. Now, that works out great 
unless your B-movie happens to turn out to be some sort of, like, surprise smash hit, because then you don't get the advantage that you would get of getting a percentage on every ticket sold. So that's the case of Fast and the Furious, then. Right, yeah. So, it was super, super popular, mm-hmm. but because of the flat rate, they only made, like, $5 instead of the $15. Sure, yeah. I mean, $250,000 on a $60,000 budget is still a huge success. It's just not as successful as it could be. Yeah. Profitable as it could be. Right. Now, Corman had done some second unit directing on The Fast and the Furious, and it made him realize that he wanted to direct. And part of that was some, like, artistic, like, hey, I really enjoy doing this, and, like, you know, this is maybe what I really want to do to express, you know, my artistic vision, whatever. And part of it was also the realization that if he directed his movies himself, he could waive his own director's salary in order to keep costs down. Um, Because he's already making money on a producer's salary. Yeah. So why pay two people when I can pay one person, and that one person is me, so no one's going to complain that I didn't pay the director. This cost-saving measure would help uh, when he decided to direct his second feature for ARC, a western called Five Guns West, because it was to be shot in color. Ultimately, um, Five Guns West ended up going over budget. Oh, Corman! Uh, It cost $75,000, partially due to the inexperience of Corman as a director, and partially due to rain throughout the shoot, uh, constantly delaying the exterior shots. Sure. Under the terms of ARC's deal with Corman, uh, they deemed that the overages would have to come out of the budget for Corman's third film. So, uh, that left... Corman with $30,000 to make the third movie instead of the 60 and 75 that the first two were made on. Even though Five Guns West did make $350,000 at the box office. So reduced to essentially double what Monster from the Ocean Floor had uh, for this third picture. Obviously it was back to black and white and obviously it was back to cost-cutting measures. The film would have to be shot non-union in order to be shot for that kind of money. And that meant that Corman couldn't direct because he had to join the DGA to direct Five Guns West, which was shot union because that was the only way to, like, you know, take advantage of the existing Western backlots and stuff, right? The shoot would also have to be done some distance out of Los Angeles. Um, There's a certain distance around the city wherein if you make a movie there it has to be union um and if you make it outside of that it doesn't and if you've ever wondered why a lot of cheap movies from the 50s are all shot around bronson canyon that's why (laughs) so uh directing duties went to lou pace who was corman's uncredited assistant director on five guns west haven't we seen stuff from lou pace you're probably, oh, probably thinking Lee, Lee Pace. Pace. Yeah. Corman's production assistant, David Kramersky, would then serve as Pace's assistant director. Corman's uh, preferred cinematographer, who he's worked on on all the previous movies, Floyd Crosby, was, of course, union. He was, you know, down on his luck career-wise, but he was still a union uh, cinematographer. So director of photography duties fell to complete novice Everett Baker. 
whose only other credit before this point was as a technical assistant on a horror movie that had been shot two years earlier, but would not come out until several months later. Okay. So, now the question is what to shoot. So, Corman became aware of a sci-fi screenplay by historical fiction novelist Tom Flyer called The Unseen. And it was about a telepathic, mind-controlling alien menace who comes to conquer humanity and is, and here's the key part, invisible. Perfect. So, Nicholson developed an ad campaign for the movie under a new title, The Beast with a Million Eyes. Because he's, he's telepathic and he does mind control, so he, he can see through... All of the people he's mind control, so he has a million. It's a metaphor. Oh, I just got that. Mm -hmm. The ad campaign was sort of based around the philosophy of when you have no steak, you need a lot of sizzle. Um, <laughs> so, artist uh, Albert Callis, who is a very prolific and famous artist of 1950s sci-fi B-movie posters, uh, he created an incredible poster of a multi-eyed, cat-faced, alien, floating head monster menacing a girl dressed only in her nightclothes. That's what you gotta do in this business, Ben. You wanna be a star, don't you? <laughs> Location shooting took place in Riverside County in California, and it would see Pace ultimately be replaced by Kramersky during the shoot, which would lead to Kramersky getting on-screen credit as directing the film. Okay. With the shoot almost complete, uh, the Union showed up to the location shoot and threatened to shut down production unless A, everyone joined, and B, everyone was retroactively paid their union rates for what they had already done on the movie. And Corman's, like, doing the math, like, oh no. So, in response, Corman dismissed the majority of the crew and directed all of the remaining scenes, which were the interior scenes, himself on a soundstage in L.A. with Floyd Crosby, because, like, hey, if we have to be union now, let's just do it, in two days. Damn. Because, you know, if we have to have a union director in DOP and we got to pay them those union rates, like, we want to pay them... As little as possible, exactly. as quickly as possible. Exactly. The film's cast of nobodies, has-beens, and bit players includes Lorna Thayer, a 36-year-old actress who is best remembered today for her role as the waitress in the diner scene in Five Easy Pieces 15 years after this. 67-year-old Chester Conklin, who was one of the original Keystone Cops back in the 1910s, and a 25-year-old Dick Sargent, best known as the second Darren on TV's Bewitched from 1969 to 1972. To create the film's special effects, 28-year-old model maker and sci-fi fan Paul Blaisdell was hired on Forrest Ackerman's recommendation for a flat $200. <laughs> the film's art director was 25-year-old Albert Ruddy, who would go on to produce such films as The Godfather, The Longest Yard, Cannibal Run, and Million Dollar Baby. 
So becomes a big dude. Yes. But he's like 25 and pimple-faced here. Yeah. Now, once the film was shot, Arkov and Nicholson uh, screened it to potential exhibitors. The reaction was negative. Joseph Levine, who would bring Godzilla to the United States the following year, spoke up for everybody by asking, where the hell is the monster? He offered Nicholson $100,000 to reshoot the movie to match the poster, and $200,000 if Nicholson would do it in color. Nicholson refused, (laughs) because ultimately, ARC knows what they're about. We're only maybe going to make between two and three hundred thousand dollars on this, which means we only are rich if we don't spend that kind of money on the movie. So uh, he set about making changes to the film, though. You know, we still want to. All right. Where's the monster? Let's let's do it. Uh, So changes were made like Nicholson took some scissors and put a bunch of scratches into the film and then colored the scratches in with Sharpie for mind control visual effects. (laughs) And then he had Corman spend $3,000 out of his own pocket to do reshoots to put a monster in the movie, which ultimately would be a hand puppet uh, created by Paul Blaisdell, still under the terms of his original $200 flat rate, that would then, you know, take on the role of the big, bad monster, um, you know, shot as a miniature, essentially. This would turn out to be the first of many very imaginative but very low-budget monsters that Paul Blaisdell would create for Corman over the next several years. <laughs> Amazing. Released as a B-picture on June 15th, 1955, Beast with a Million Eyes made $300,000 on its $33,000 budget. Corman's partnership with ARC would continue with the Western Apache Woman, and today... Beast with a Million Eyes can be found on DVD from MGM in their Midnight Movie series, paired with fellow ARC release Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. And you can stream it on the free ad-based streaming service Tubi. Which, as a free but ad-based streaming service, has a whole lot of um, what I would call new direct-to-video style movies on one hand and old, possibly public domain B-movies from the 50s on the other hand. I thought you were going to say something in regards to the quality of the advertisements. Oh, no. They might be a little provocative. I have no idea. Okay. Uh, Well, folks, hopefully you can watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss... The Beast with a Million Eyes from 1955, directed by David Kramarski and others. See you on the other side, everybody. to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Beast with a Million Eyes, directed by David Kramersky and some other people. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? It's fine. 
it was what like an hour and 10 minutes yeah like an hour 20 maybe what did you think so i actually liked this it has a certain je ne sais quoi <laughs> i think ultimately its reach exceeds its grasp but i like that it's at least reaching for something okay why don't we talk about the story and then we can dive more into it. So, when I sat down to write the synopsis, mm -hmm. it was really hard to decipher when, what order certain things happened in. Because some things happened repeatedly, mm -hmm. and were going back and forth and forth and back mm -hmm. several times. So, here's my best shot. It's got all those hallmarks of the low-budget film of kind of, like, doing the same things multiple times because, like, doing a new thing... Would cost money. Right. Or, like, we can't afford to move the story forward at this point, so we need to kind of trap the characters in a loop for a bit. And Yeah, for sure. The film opens with a monologue from the Beast himself mm. about, I don't know feeding on anger and hate or something, it doesn't really matter. It gets explained repeatedly later on. Yeah, he's like explaining what his plan is and what he's going to be doing in the movie as if the filmmakers... Were worried that we wouldn't be able to follow. Right, or that like by the time it got explained in the body of the movie, we would have like given up and been like, I'm too confused by what's happening. I'm out of here. The gist is, this is a creature from another world... That world has either died or is dying out, and he has come to Earth to determine, is it cool for us to live here? And to determine, you know, what can we eat when we're here? And thus the feeding on the anger and hate and all-around savagery of, like, lesser beings, like animals. Um, but even the, like, anger and hate that, like, the average person feels... Soon I will gather my strength and connect to these brains into the human race and feed on this anger and hate or something. Yeah, he's an immaterial being. Yeah. The film itself is set on an isolated date farm in the desert. And our main characters are Alan, the farmer, his wife, Carol, who's a real bitch because the plot needs her to be right now, and Sandy, their daughter. There's also him, a farmhand, um, who has, like, a scar on his forehead, like he's been lobotomized or had some kind of head injury, and is mute. So, because they're like, well, we can't ask him his name, so we just call him him? Like, like Hodor, or something. <laughs> the guy gives off... Major Lenny from Of Mice and Men vibes. And we follow this family and their drama for most of the movie. Now, Carol is in an unhappy marriage. Alan is like, it's, it's time for Sandy to go off to university. And she's like, I hate her for having opportunities that I never had. And Sandy overhears this and is like, my mom's a bitch and hates me. And Alan's just trying to hold it all together while his farm goes deeper into debt. 
Yeah, they haven't. They've been losing money the last three years. It's it's wild. Overhearing how much her mom hates her, Sandy storms off with her dog Duke and goes swimming at the local watering hole. Uh, with uh, him, the farmhand, following and watching from a tree, because he's a creep. Um, meanwhile, Alan is like going to the North Grove to do farm stuff. Uh, all of which is to say that he's not around when um, a very strange occurrence happens at the house. Uh, everyone keeps describing it as like some weird, maybe jet plane flying like really low above the house. There's like a humming sound, vibrations, every glass in the house breaks, um, including some windows. Sandy even hears it out at the watering hole. Um, but they don't see a plane, but that's the only way that they're really able to describe it. So Sandy is like, okay, well, I think I should head back home then. And Duke, the dog, is kind of freaked out, and he runs off into the desert. Sandy makes it back home and sees that Carol is, like, completely rattled and is continuing to be a bitch. And, you know, at least now she has a reason because all of her fine china has been broken. Alan gets home and he's like, whoa, whoa, what's, what's happened here? Now, Carol has called the sheriff to be like, the fuck? And so they send Larry, who is like a deputy or some shit, and also sweet on Sandy. Um, they are sweet on each other. And uh, he comes out, blah, blah, blah. He heads back to town with Sandy. Alan heads to town. While Alan is driving into town, he is stopped when he sees like a blackbird on the road that's dead. And as he checks it out, he is further attacked by many other birds who just seem to have it out for him. Carol is left alone in the house uh, when Duke, the dog, returns. Now, we have seen him wandering the desert, and he comes across a strange-looking machine that uh, is apparently um, a coffee maker <laughs> from Ben's behind-the-scenes notes off in the desert, giving off like this hum and some weird flashy lights. Duke has returned, and he is on a mission to attack Carol. She ends up trying to, like, shoot him, failing, and ends up taking an axe to him. It's like, it's like the ending of Old Yeller. It's not. <laughs> but, like, the implication is the ending of Old Yeller. Now, him, the farmhand, is around, and he runs off scared from Duke. Um, so he's of no help. Alan and Sandy come home, and Carol's like, Hey, Sandy, killed your dog! And Sandy's like, fuck you, mom, and runs off um, and finds herself wandering into the desert towards this machine that we've seen. And she seems to like be in a daze and kind of snaps out of it when she runs into him, the farmhand, who is also becoming this way. Um, I keep saying him, the farmhand, just to make it clear who I'm talking about. Sure. Um, and because like they both run into each other, they're like, oh, wait, why are we out here? Let's go back to the house. Next day, Carol had, seems to have gotten out of her grumpy state of mind. Um, she's happy and loving. Um, she goes to feed the chickens and <laughs> gets attacked. Now, the chickens aren't the only animals in this area that are acting odd. Uh, a local guy who we met earlier, but it wasn't worth it to mention, um, he has a cow who's apparently like super calm, super chill, uh, and he milks this cow. Uh, not today. This cow goes wild and gores him, tramples him. It's dope, but we don't get to see it. Not really. Anyways, Alan drives into town, um, dropping off him, the farmhand, 
uh, to a grove to go do tree stuff. Uh, and he starts to do tree stuff and then wanders back out to the desert. Sandy and Carol are alone in the house and they see the local guy's cow and they're like, oh, the cow is wandering around. Well, let's go catch her and bring her back in. Cow attacks. Just before she's about to trample Carol, Alan, who has somehow come back, shoots it dead. So he decides to call for the police. He doesn't connect through, though, because birds fly into their phone and electrical line, killing themselves, but also severing the phone lines in this manner. It's wild. They decide to try to drive into town to get the police, uh, but the birds decide to attack the car and keep them in the house. Larry, back at the sheriff's office, um, starts to head into Alan's farm, um, partly because he's traced the call and also because, hey, it's Sandy's birthday and I was invited over to have dinner with them. But as he's driving out, he runs into him, the farmhand, who ends up uh, stopping Larry by knocking him out um, so he can't reach the house. This means Larry doesn't show for dinner and Sandy's real upset. Um, she's also getting further upset about, like, all the weird shit that's going on and her parents insisting on, like, treating it like a normal day. So she runs out, um, bumps into him, the farmhand, who kidnaps her and takes her to the desert. By this time, Larry has caught up with Alan and they team up to go rescue Sandy, having kind of a, uh, you know that scene where, like, Two people are on, like, opposite sides of the room, and they're trying to call to a dog, like, here, dog, here, and, like, the dog has to choose between them. Sure. So that's kind of what happens with him. Uh, he's taking Sandy towards the um, crashed rocket ship. Meanwhile, on the other side is Alan saying, Carl, Carl, no, come bring Sandy back. She's my daughter. Come on, bring her back. And this test of his mental fortitude causes him, the farmhand, also apparently now known as Carl, to die. It does mean that Larry and Alan are able to rescue Sandy. Um, they head out of the desert, run into Carol. Then we get a little bit of a backstory on Carl, apparently. Um, throughout the film, there's been references to how Alan was in the war, and he doesn't talk about his time in the war. And with him, the farmhand, acting up, he had been sending a letter to Veteran Affairs. Turns out him is actually Carl, who was in Alan's unit. Alan made a bad call in, like, the heat of battle, and Carl ended up lobotomized for it. So that's why he's on the farm helping out, because Alan didn't want Carl to be laughed at by normal society. And I'm like, my guy, then at least call him Carl... Not just him. Yeah, there was tell your family what his deal was, or at least his name. Yeah, there was no reason to like be like, oh yeah, this is just a random mute like guy, guy who I picked up. Who yeah, I'm, he's just gonna live in this shack outside our house and masturbate all day. Yeah, you can tell like oh, I get that like he's ashamed or whatever because it was his fault and like he doesn't want to talk about his wartime experiences. But you don't have to be like. He's like this because of me. me. You can just be like, hey, this is my bud who was in my unit in the war and, you know, he got injured and his brain's all fucked up so he can't get regular work. So he's just going to work for me now so I can take care of him. Yeah, you don't have to add the part about like, and it's all my fault if you don't want to. Yeah. 
Um, and Ben's note about him masturbating is real. The movie literally has, like, um, babes pinned up around Carl's uh, room. And he, like, we have a shot where he goes, locks the door, and goes back to his bed and, like, curls up and, like... With, with a magazine. With a magazine. His back is to the camera. Like, he's masturbating. Yeah, and it's part of this whole thing early in the movie, right? Where he's, like, watching Sandy all pervy and Carol doesn't like him because she watches him and stuff. And it's all meant to make us, like, think that he's going to be, like, a big problem. Yeah, he's a red herring. Yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, so... <laughs> Alan, Carol, and Sandy, Sandy's knocked out, are, like, on the edge of the desert. And we get this, like, voiceover from the beast himself speaking telepathically to our characters, saying, Give me the girl! I must know why you guys seem to be so strong for my power. And Alan's like, It's because of love! We help each other by being together through love. You can only get us if we are alone and vulnerable. Um, so no, you won't get my daughter. Fuck you, alien. After that, Alan, with Carol, Sandy, and Larry, head back to the crater. And has a standoff with the beast in the rocket ship, I guess. And this is when we get the creature reveal. Um... Now, I understand with the context setting Ben gave of, you know, it's going to be like something that was just like whipped together. It's going to be like a hand puppet thing. I did not expect it to actually be canonically the size of a hand puppet. <laughs> he comes out of this little door in his little spaceship and menaces the camera and then dies. For no reason. And then the ship flies off because it's going it's in the script for it to go up. And Carol stands there asking Alan, like, well, what was that? How did it die? Why did it leave? Alan saying the dumbest excuses of like, it was it the last of its kind, so it died because of that. It the rocket ship left because it was programmed to. Like, we have to explain every little fucking thing here. And Alan goes, but I don't think... I don't know if the beast itself, which was said to be an ethereal being, was actually on that rocket ship because the thing it was inhabiting died. So who knows where it could be? And Carol goes, Alan, look! A rat! And they're like, oh shit, it's in the rat. And before they go to shoot it, Carol goes, Alan, look! And they look up, and it's an eagle! And the eagle flies down and gets the rat and flies off to go eat it. And Carol's like, I don't know when we've ever seen an eagle here in these parts before. And Alan's like, yeah, must have been God. That's the implication. I forget what they actually fucking say. They imply that, yeah, God killed the being, and then God sent the eagle to kill the rat. The end. What the fuck? Uh, you and I had very different takeaways from this movie. Like, it's fine. <laughs> and I did, like, enjoy the, like, for lack of a better word, Kuleshov editing to follow the film. But, like, I don't know. This, this was, like, 
It was fine, Ben. Um, so... Tell me what you liked about it. <sighs> um, so, I mean, obviously, like, the movie is very flawed. And it's also very cheap. It, it, you can tell, right? Every step of the way. Yeah. There's things where it's like, you know, people's clothing isn't quite the same from indoors to outdoors because it was shot at super different times and whatnot. And when Sarah mentions the Kuleshov effect here, what she's talking about is the fact that because it has to deal with, like, animals being mind-controlled into attacking people, but, like, this movie does not have the money for, like, trained animals and, like, action scenes and, like, stunt doubles and, like, insurance on actors. So anytime any kind of action happens, whether it's an animal attacking a person or even, like, a person attacking a person, we almost never see the attacker and victim in the same shot at the same time. It'll be, like, a shot of a dog snarling and then a shot of a woman screaming. We'll hear the sound of, like, a gunshot and then, like, a shot of the dog on the ground or something. But you'll never actually see the events happening. You'll see shots that are meant to assemble the implication of the event happening by being put together. It's it's action by way of Kuleshov effect, and it's all just because they don't have the money to do anything. Which I thought was, like, neat. Like, they're doing it because of the necessity of, you know, no money. But I, I thought it was neat how they were managing to get across what action they wanted to get across. Sure. So, what I liked about the movie, first off, as it started, it was very refreshing for me to get away from the professor, the reporter, the girlfriend, and the soldier kind of sets of characters for a while. Like, there's a young couple in this movie, but they're not even really the focus. The focus is on the married couple. And the movie is focused on this family and its problems. When it starts, it's like a Tennessee Williams play up in here with, Oof. like, all the, like, problems that this family has. And ultimately, like, the movie is focused on examining, like, the way that isolation and desperation can kind of, like, tear people apart and make them nihilistic and paranoid and, like, snap at each other and how that is what opens their minds to, you know, invasion from the beast and how the only thing that can protect them is by being together and by, like, loving each other. Like, the whole reason... Carol goes through a character shift in the film, right? Like, the thing is, the characters have arcs. And, you know, they're not well established because of what I suspect is some editing problems and some directing problems in the sense of, like, you know, as the director's changing, whether we're indoors or outdoors, there's some forgetfulness of, like, where in that arc the actor should be at this point. Mm -hmm. But, like, Alan just sort of intuits throughout the movie that, like, there must be something bigger than just the animals all going crazy for some reason. And, you know, have you noticed that, like, it gets worse when we're alone, but when we're together it backs off? Or, like, the way that Sandy was in a trance in the desert and so was him until they ran into each other and then they both snapped out of it. And so the two of them realize that the only thing that's going to save them is by being together and expressing love for each other when at the start of the movie they're like the marriage is is doomed right and so what you have is a film whose arc is about a family that has 
you know, become ripped apart, having to rediscover its love and affection for each other as part of defending itself from this alien force. And, you know, you, you talk about, like, you know, Carol being a bitch, but, like, I think her attitudes are, like, really understandable for someone in her position, even though it's, like, you know, saying that you hate your daughter is not the best uh, way to express these things. But, like, the implication here is that, like, you know, she came from maybe the city or a richer family or something, married Alan came out here onto this date ranch in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. The date ranch is failing, so that gambit ended up being wrong. They're all getting older. Sandy's going to go off to college, and she is jealous of Sandy for being younger and having these opportunities, but she also expresses to Alan, and, and the two of them both express, like, even before the alien gets here, that, like, there's something about living in isolation in the desert that just seems to like make you feel like the world is against you and like that you're just stuck out here alone and you know that there's this force that's pressing in on you and she basically says like because the thing is is like Sandy has her swimming hole she's got her boyfriend she's got her dog Alan goes out to like work in the farm or go into town to get supplies and all we see Carol ever do is just hang out at home and bake food, which she's terrible at. Uh, she consistently burns, burns everything. everything. And, like, she freaks out over the, you know, she breaks down when she burns something. Or she freaks out over her plates breaking after they're buzzed by the UFO or whatever. But it reminds me of the way that, like, Betty Draper had, like, breakdowns in early seasons of Mad Men. And the way that you hear about, like, you know when you couldn't go anywhere as a housewife and you couldn't, you know, she's also on this farm in the middle of nowhere. So she doesn't even have like the sewing circle or whatever to gossip with. So she's got nothing. So when your whole life is, did you successfully make dinner today or not? It makes sense. And if Sandy goes off to college, then she's just alone while every day when Alan goes out to work on the farm and yeah, that's a horrifying prospect. And so I can understand why she's just so at the end of her rope at the start of this movie and totally on edge about everything that's happening around her. And the arc of the movie is her having to rediscover her love for her husband and rediscover her love for her daughter and her daughter having to reconcile with her and all of this because this crisis forces them together and forces them to recognize the value that like love and togetherness has. And on a wider metaphorical level, you know, I think there's something very important to the idea that being isolated from others and being in desperate situations where you feel like you don't have any hope anywhere to go, the idea that that opens your mind to being invaded with these hostile forces from outside uh, really strikes me really hard in the era of quarantine um quarantine yes but also like sad angry white guys in their basements getting radicalized by 4chan and stuff like that sure and the way that like love and togetherness and having people who matter to you in your life can help stave that off the movie can't quite pull all this off no, I think, like, Carol, as you've pointed out, is, like, the strongest point to make this thematic argument. Mm. I think that 
this is what the movie's trying to do. I think the screenplay has ambitions here and is trying to say something. I think what hampers it a lot of the time is that, you know, for the story to make sense, when we get to the climax, the climax has to be us essentially talking the alien to death. Yeah. Like, that we have to have this big, long thing where the alien's just telepathically explaining itself to the characters so that all of these themes can be brought to the forefront, and it's very dramatically inert there. Yeah. The ending itself, you know, the monster's just there because they needed a monster. So then it just kind of dies because it never was supposed to be in the story to begin with. Yeah. But the implication here is that, like, you know, that's not the beast with a million eyes. That's some creature it inhabited because it needed something to fly the spaceship. And, yeah, it is the later implication that, like, it died because God killed it, and God sent the eagle to kill the rat. Although they don't actually say that at the end of the movie. Um, they might as no, well. No, no, they might as well. I'm agreeing with you. I'm okay. just I'm just pointing out that they don't say, oh, God saved us. I think it's what is literally said is, like, Carol raises the question of, like, what killed the creature? And, like, uh, what killed the rat? Like, what sent the eagle? Or why was the eagle here? Or whatever. And Alan's response is, like, what gives men souls? Which is God. And, you know, earlier in the talking the monster to death part of the movie, they raised the idea that, like, this alien monster doesn't have a soul because it's, like, evolved past the need of it. And that's why it does not understand this human emotion called love and therefore is able to be <laughs> defeated by it. There's some hokey stuff at play here for sure. The rocket ship, by the way, takes off because the alien said that he was going to take off. It was already pre-programmed to take off at dawn. They don't have to guess that. The alien told them that. Oh. It is hard to understand what the alien is saying occasionally. Yes. Because they've put this, like, echo effect on the voice to, you know, indicate that it's like a telepathic voice. Makes sense. But it's it's not well mixed. So it does, you know, instead of having, like, a I am the beast kind of effect, it's more of like a... <laughs> and you're like, excuse me? What? Um, uh, I want it to be made clear that I did not put any effects on Ben's voice. That was him doing stuff with his hands. It's Foley. <laughs> um, but the God thing at the end didn't even really bother me that much. We've seen quite a few movies from this period play this Protestant American God card. And I roll my eyes every time Yes, then. absolutely. And I do most of the time, too. I mean, one of the biggest examples is the live-action War of the Worlds movie from this period, taking H.G. Wells's like, bacteria killed them ending, and making it like, but you know, God makes bacteria, so really it was God who killed them. <laughs> it's um, so, like, overt. Yeah. What I didn't mind about it here is that the movie's ending has such a sincerity to it, and maybe it's a little eye-rolling because it's like, we defeated you with love, but defeating the alien with love and God coming and saving the day works for me because the entire movie thematically has been about this family that has broken down, that is having to rediscover itself and rediscover the love for one another in the family. Those are very... American Christian Protestant values. Sure. So having an ending that plays into Protestant values 
works because that's what the whole movie's been about this whole time. And for a movie from 1955, especially a sci-fi B-movie where none of this fucking matters because it's not like you're going to win any Oscars here, my guys. <laughs> um, I think it's very brave to, you know, not only basing the movie around a family, which is not normal at this point in the genre's development, but to start with a dysfunctional family. For a movie in the 50s to be saying, hey, look, here's a dysfunctional family, you know, and recognizing that for the ending where we defeat the alien with love to mean anything, we have to start with the characters just kind of hating each other was very surprising to me for a movie from 1955. I would agree. And I will say that, like, I did appreciate how focused this movie was on just the this little family. You could even just say, like, this little community because of that, like... Milk yeah, guy. some of the farmer and the sheriff and whatnot. But, but like, just being focused on this isolated family felt very um, new, as yeah, you said. the Department of Agriculture doesn't come in here with a scientist to explain what's going on. <laughs> and there are, he's not followed by, like, six generals. Yeah, for sure. The thing that struck me the most watching this, and maybe the reason I'm giving this movie a lot of credit, even though it is a cheap movie, has all of the earmarks of a cheap movie and all of the frustrations that watching a cheap movie can have, is because this is color out of space. Yeah, I was going to say that. Like, it's on a much lower budget, but the broad strokes of this is kind of the same broad strokes as that movie, just with a ending where everything works out, rather than an apocalyptic ending. Yeah. But, you know, the same thing of, like, the family isolated in the middle of nowhere, and it's kind of falling apart because the farm is kind of a failure and like things start to go crazy and it's all about how like the weirdness outside the farm is kind of exacerbating the paranoia and weirdness and strains among the family and then all the animals go weird and start attacking you and this kind of thing yeah and also like to be um completely clear are we just talking about the nick cage color out of space or are we talking about the short story i mean i'm i'm kind of talking about both because like the short story came out like probably I think 20 years before this movie did so like it could potentially be an influence but I guess I'm referring mostly to the Nick Cage movie because I think the Nick Cage movie brings the family stuff far more to the forefront than it was in the short story um yeah my only experience with Color Out of Space is the Nick Cage movie mm -hmm. um and as soon as, like, the animals were attacking or being weird, the fact that Sandy is, like, yeah, I blacked out and suddenly I was in the desert mm -hmm. and I'm not really sure the passing of time or how I got there. Uh, and whenever they try to leave, either Carl or the birds bring them back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, all of the stuff that plot-wise happens in the Nick Cage movie is from the short story. It's just an emphasis yeah. in the movie is much more on this family in order to provide a human core. And that was the other thing about emphasizing this family and its dysfunction and making that part of the story of the film is it gave a human core to the movie and it doesn't always work, but that felt much more modern to me. You know, if you compare to modern horror movies like color out of space or hereditary versus our traditional 1950s character of like, I'm Dr. Buck Hansen, hero scientist, and this is my girlfriend, Mary Jo, and her father, Professor Von Schmeitzel. 
And we're here with General Macduff to defeat the alien scum, you know? Yes, but it's so, it's so, like, melodramatic, Ben. It's so overdone. And, like, I come from a dysfunctional family. Mm -hmm. And sure, there are times where the melodrama on soap operas sometimes seem, like, not so far-fetched. But it was just so much. Well, I mean, especially because the movie definitely starts with these characters at their most extreme point. Which, yeah, which I think, which is why it was so, like, not necessarily off-putting, but just so much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what it needs to do for the character arcs to work. And it is, like, a really weird place to start a movie, especially when you're... Like, we are kind of immersed in movies of this vintage right now, where you're like, wait, what? Yeah. What did you just... Did you just say you hate your daughter? What? <laughs> so, the cast, most of them are kind of on the level of actors in this kind of movie. Um, Dick Sargent plays Larry, and he's definitely just here because the movie needed a young hero. He really doesn't serve any role in the story. No. Like... He doesn't accomplish anything. He doesn't even really do anything as Sandy's boyfriend. He's just kind of here because someone figured the movie needed a male hero who was under 50. You know, so there's not much to say about him. The actor playing him, Carl, Carl, Carl the him, you know, he's mute and he just has to, like, lumber around menacingly. So he doesn't need to do much. Sandy, the actress playing her, kind of varies from good to terrible kind of depending on what she needs to be doing in the scene. There's some emotions that she can play a lot better than others, which comes down to, like, she's probably a very inexperienced actress. I think Lorna Thayer isn't bad as Carol. I think the stuff that is a bit off in her performance comes from some problems with the script or maybe the directing not quite being consistent enough in where her character's at in that arc. But Paul Birch is pretty solid as Alan. He kind of has to be because he's like the main rock of the family. absolutely. He's the rock that holds the family together. And I think he's the rock holding the movie together. He's grounding everything. I think this movie has a really interesting like symbiotic relationship between the script and the actors in that the script has a little bit more to chew on than the average sci-fi B-movie which is giving the actors a little bit more to hold on to as actors so that they can actually deliver some kind of performance. And by delivering some kind of performance, it's also helping sell some of the wilder things that the script needs them to say, like the way that Alan just kind of intuits what's going on around him. It works because he's like a middle-aged like farmer with like a really... With an army background. He looks and sounds exactly like Pa Kent in Superman the movie. Yeah. And so with that kind of voice and bearing, it just kind of, you, you go like, yeah, of course, Alan. Like, whatever you say makes sense. Even when he has to deliver lines like, but Carol, birds, birds don't, don't think. think. I lost it at this line because he says it so seriously. like So sincerely. He like, does all the lines sincerely. Carol, birds don't think. Which is meant to be like, so how could the birds plan these coordinated attacks against us? Dun, dun, dun. But like... Birds the... think, my guy. <laughs> yeah, like... like <laughs> I get what you're trying to say, movie. 
but that's not the same as like birds don't strategize is what you're trying to say which is not the same thing as birds don't think (laughs) so ultimately you can really see the seams in this movie i will say it's doing killer birds like 10 years before hitchcock does yes but I don't think that's necessarily like a... Like, I don't think Hitchcock was inspired by no, this. No, absolutely not. It's, I, it's <laughs> just these fake birds being tossed off screen, and they only have, like, two. So they have to toss, and then you just imagine a PA or Roger Corman himself running up to grab the next one. So I don't <laughs> think this inspired Hitchcock. But no. to be honest... I don't think it's too far out of field to think that the writing of this movie might have been inspired by Lovecraft in some way, given that Lovecraft had been dead 20 years by this point. And I, in turn, don't think it's too far out of field to wonder if the Color Out of Space movie didn't take some things from this movie. You know, not in a sense of like, we're looking up to this movie on a pedestal, but just because Roger Corman is a very famous, influential figure in Hollywood and in genre pictures which is why people remember his movies and why people go back to them and, you know, why we're here talking about this movie now. Enough that it's, you know, not unreasonable to think that a horror movie director like the director of Color Out of Space could have seen this movie, would know about this movie, right? Yeah. And I think you can absolutely see where this movie's cheap and where the seams are and what doesn't work about it, but it is held together by actually having something to say in its story that's a little bit more than just, um, what hath man wrought, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I do think, like, the tone setting is pretty well done. Um, the farm where they're at is pretty, like, creepy with um, the way that the trees create these, like, shades mm-hmm. um, from the sun, um, the emphasis on the isolation, the music you know, is here and there. It doesn't really support anything. But I think between, like, the voiceovers, the way that the script is, and the way things are shot definitely emphasize the the tone. Mm -hmm. At no point, except for this one thing that I'll, I'll, I'll explain in a second, it does take the time to really be, like, something's off here. There's weird things afoot. Yeah, and it takes the time to make us understand that these characters are in a very vulnerable place before all this stuff even starts to go down. Yes. And now this exception is um, our milk dude who gets trampled by the cow apparently was like this cop character. He, He was one of the original Keystone cops in the 1910s, which are like, if you imagine a stereotype like, oh, it's going too fast, slapstick, silent movie in your head where a bunch of bumbling, stupid cops, like, chase after somebody. That's the Keystone Cops. He's one of those guys. Okay, yeah, he has, like, right before he gets trampled, start of the scene, he's doing the bumbling thing with, like, goofy music. But then he gets trampled, you know, so it's all right. (laughs) Yeah, he's our comic relief while he's still alive. And then the movie kills him, which I think is an admirable move for a horror movie. In the 1950s. Yeah. I think the movie benefits from having actual arcs for its characters, from having some solid performances for most of the principal actors. And you talked about the, the music. All the music in this movie stock. Um, it's credited to someone in the opening credits. That person doesn't exist. They're just a <laughs> fiction. It's all library music. Sometimes... I think it really supports the action on the screen well, or at least the tone and the mood. Yeah, they did like a good job of selecting something. 
and then other times it's like, no, this makes it feel like like it's morning and it's not supposed to be. Yeah, it sometimes it matches, sometimes it doesn't. But no matter what, because it's all like library classical music, it's always better written music anyways than most of the music scores that you would have gotten for a movie of this price and this time if you'd done an original score. Yeah. Like, it's always good music, even if it doesn't quite match. Match. Also, the opening titles are really cool. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. It's like very, like, Salvador Dali eyes and trees and rocks stuff. Mm -hmm. It's kind of neat. It definitely sets the tone for um, some, like, paranoia. Yeah. So, ultimately, like, this is schlock, and it's cheap, and it's very hobbled, but I think there's some genuine art trying to poke through here. And the last thing I'll say is that the little alien was actually pretty cute. (laughs) He was very cute, Ben. Um, (laughs) In terms of the movie use, disappointing. But the little puppet thing itself was pretty cute. (laughs) Let's move on to ranking. For sure. So, Sarah, I had a really hard time working out my range for this one. Oh, I had an easy time. I think for me it was because of trying to find the balance with the fact that I really respected what the movie was trying to do, while also still acknowledging that the movie was in no way equipped to do what it was trying to do. Sure. Like, where I'm looking at the list and I'm going like, this movie is way better made, but also it's like, there's nothing to, you know, this movie. Versus here, where it's like, there's a lot of interesting ideas trying to get through here, but... It's cheap as fuck. (laughs) So I started by looking at where our last Roger Corman movie is, which you kind of liked despite itself. And that movie is sitting at number 129. Monster from the Ocean Floor, yep. And I thought, in my opinion, this was better. Okay. Because ultimately, while Monster from the Ocean Floor is better than it has really any rights to be, It is involving those stock characters and those stock situations. Above that, there's stuff like Jungle Woman and The Mummy's Curse and Face of Marvel and The Invisible Ray, which all kind of fit into what I was talking about earlier. Movies that are probably on a technical level better made, like Invisible Ray, for instance, but that, like, I'm never going to watch Invisible Ray again. You know, (laughs) probably. I hit 124, The Unknown, the Todd Browning film which is this low on the list because it's not really horror, but also is like a really weird movie in a way that it benefits from, is really willing to have some like fucked up scenarios in it, has a great performance from Lon Chaney Sr., good directing from Todd Browning. So that's where I started to be like, okay, we're in the realm of like, this is kind of good, this is kind of bad. So I set 125 to be my floor. I thought this movie might be worse than The Unknown, it's definitely better than The Invisible Ray. And I kept looking up, and I ran into stuff like, you know, hey, there's Bride of the Monster at 122, Mm -hmm. Pika Vaya Dama from 1916, which is, you know, a movie that's trying to do a lot of artistic stuff, but is also kind of hobbled. Stuff, you know, like the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde, Frankenstein, The Sealed Room, Spanish Dracula, The Brute Man, uh, The Magician... Uh, Dracula in Istanbul, The Bat, Genuina, all these movies that like have some artistry to them, but also kind of don't quite work. I kept making my way up. 
Oh, boy. Uh, you know, through all of these kind of mushy middle movies, uh, The Mummy, Mystery of the Wax Museum, The Climax, The Invisible Man's Revenge, which is another perfect example of a movie that is technically much better than this, but also has no thematic meaning at all. Ghost of Frankenstein, where I was like, I like this better than Ghost of Frankenstein. And, you know, Invaders from Mars, which has, in in common with this movie, sort of that, like, eh, you don't really have the ability to fully pull this off, do you? And then I hit stuff like Dracula's Daughter at 82, Murders in the Rue Morgue, 81, you know, Dr. X, 78. I was like, okay, these are better. These are definitely better than this movie. Uh, even if they have their own flaws, the stuff that's good about them is better than the stuff that's good in this movie. So, my range is 83, below Dracula's Daughter, to 125, below The Unknown. So as I said, I had a hard time. Yeah, clearly. Oh my. So when I was looking, I also started looking at 129, Monster from the Ocean Floor, and I felt that movie was shot much better than The Beast with a Million Eyes. Yeah. It has, like, underwater stuff. The acting is much better. I think the thing we acknowledged about that movie is that it recognized what its limitations were. Yeah. Which this movie, even though it was like, hey, the monster's invisible, still is trying to do a bit more than it can chew off. So I was looking down. Okay. From there. And I settled around 157, Misa of Lost Women. Oh, God, that's a terrible movie. Yeah, and I felt that this would go above that, but probably not higher than, you know, you have things like Three Cases of Murder at 149, The Crime of Dr. Crespi at 152, The Mad Ghoul, 153. So it felt like this range of, I don't know, let's say below Scared to Death, 155 to 157, Mise of Lost Women. So very... Narrow range. God, this is better than Scared to Death, Sarah. <laughs> like, Scared to Death is entertaining because it's fucking nuts and Bella Lugosi's in it. But if you asked me to tell you what Scared to Death was about, I would just start babbling incoherently until you called, you know, some paramedics to come and get me. <laughs> it does have that effect on people. So, I want to get your thoughts on this. When we watched... Monster from the Ocean Floor. We mm-hmm. compared Roger Corman and Ed Wood because Roger Corman could see his limits and was like, okay, let's make a $15,000 movie on a $15,000 budget. And Ed Wood would be like, let's make a $100,000 movie on a $15,000 budget. Like, right. not exactly the same thing here, but Ed Wood's eyes were always bigger than his budget. Right. Now we have come to a Roger Corman film where it's almost like a feeling of his eyes being bigger than his budget a little bit. Right. Um, So I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, we directly compared them before. What do you think about it now with with this entry? So I think that budget isn't quite the only problem here because I can see why Corman thought he could do this. For the money he had. I mean, he had less money than he had for his previous two movies, but he still had double what he had for Monster from the Ocean Floor. And, you know, it's like the monster is invisible. We have a very limited cast of characters. It's all on this date farm. 
You know, we never really go anywhere else. You know, I can see where he thought he could do this. I think the big mistake, in terms of budget, is the animal stuff. Because animals are immensely hard to work with. And, you know, if you ask anybody, like, what's going to add, you know, money and time to your shoot, it's animals, children, and stunts. Um, So I think that was a mistake. But I think what really is showing here is that Corman's ambitions are exceeding his ability, not just his budget. And not so much ability in that I think that Corman is artistically incapable of pulling off this movie, but that Corman is inexperienced and doesn't have the the skills to pull this off. I can see him reading the script and being like, this is a really good script that could be done really cheaply. This is perfect. This is going to be great. And then it's like, but you don't have directors who have the skill to bring what you need out of the actors. And you don't have the cinematographers that you need to bring quite the right, you know, sense of things out of this. You don't have, you know what I mean? Like you don't have the editing that can give you the proper sense of pace that you need. You don't have. So I feel like that's the bigger issue here. I think that Bride of the Monster pulls off probably what it's trying to do better than this movie does. I don't think Bride of the Monster pulls off what it's trying to do, but Bride of the Monster is trying to be a universal horror movie from the 40s. And Beast with a Million Eyes is trying to be... It's almost like looking forward a little bit rather than looking back. It's trying to be an A24 horror movie from the (laughs) 2010s, right? And it doesn't know how to do that yet. Yeah. So I, I think the the issue here really is I think I liked this movie more than Monster from the Ocean Floor and you liked Monster from the Ocean Floor better when we came out of watching that last time. Well, you've kind of brought me around. Because, like, I saw these themes, but I was just kind of, like, lost in the... In what this movie was actually doing on you, screen. You sometimes give up on movies. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a flaw. So, what do you think about Above Bread of the Monster, Below Pico Valladama? For the, the reasons you kind of outlined here of, like... I, I think even just on the sense of Ed Wood being stuck in the past and Roger Corman kind of looking to the future. Yeah, but I also think that Bride of the Monster has that really solid central performance from Bela Lugosi. And I think Paul Birch is good and he grounds this movie, but I don't think anyone in this movie is giving a performance that really pulls off the I'm alone and paranoid and isolated in the desert and my mind's been taken over by an alien presence thing quite as good as it needs to. So how about below Bride of the Monster at 122, but above The Devil Bat, which was the movie about Bela Lugosi getting revenge on a perfume (laughs) company by creating a giant man-eating bat that was just sort of a big glider puppet on strings. Yeah. (laughs) Why don't we say this is better than that? Yeah, cool. Let's do that. Okay. So entering the list at the new number 123, below Bride of the Monster and above The Devil Bat, is The Beast with a Million Eyes from 1955, directed mostly by David Kramersky with... Contributions from Lou Pace and Roger Corman. <laughs> if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other films we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. 
If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask Box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And you can listen to us on whichever podcasting app you prefer by subscribing to our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on one of those podcasting services. Things like that help the algorithm suggest the show to more listeners. Or you can simply get us more listeners by telling them about the show, whether that's on social media or by shouting at them from six feet away. If you have the means, although we recognize that it's been a tough year for everybody and also it's Christmas time, so we get it if you can't. But if you have the means, you can head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast to directly financially support the show by becoming one of our patrons. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, but patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get regular bonus content. Specifically, we have bonus audio from every episode that comes out every Monday. And we are quickly approaching our 150th piece of bonus audio in the next eight weeks? Yeah, I think. Math is hard, man. Our first Patreon goal on the site is that when we hit $150 worth of support a month, we'll begin to do a bonus fifth episode every month covering a horror-adjacent movie. Something that is like horror, but, you know... Not quite. Not quite. Horror comedies, uh, stuff that leans more into sci-fi than horror, um, your weird West kind of movies, whatever, you know, involves maybe a mummy or a zombie, but, like... There's also maybe a cowboy or a gangster there, or we're trying to make you laugh, that kind of stuff. And so what we're trying to encourage from you guys is that we make it to 150 by 150. Hit that $150 mark by the time we hit Patreon bonus audio number 150. We are currently sitting at about $112 a month. A big thank you to Nick, who was already a patron, but increased his dollar amount to $10. Um, So thank you very much, Nick. That's very appreciated. And you can join Nick and many of our other lovely patrons of the night by going to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we have a very momentous occasion ahead of us as we head across the pond to the U.K., We are watching a sci-fi horror movie adapted from a sci-fi miniseries that played on British television and adapted by a studio that didn't really make sci-fi horror movies before this, but had such a success with this one that they then just kind of shifted gears entirely into just making horror movies all the time. It's a little studio called Hammer Films. Oh, dope! And we are watching their first real big hit, the Quatermass Experiment from 1955. What's a Quatermass? I think it's a guy's name. Oh, okay. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye!